This week's Property Matters on Dublin South FM, the show that brings global trends to an Irish audience. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your hosts today are Carol Tallon and myself, Brian Fox. We have an, exec, ex, we have an exciting lineup today of guests. Uh, first up in the studio is Ray Palmer-Smith, Director of New Homes at Night Frank, Ireland. Ray, delighted to have you in. Thank you for having me. And thank you for coming in. So what, tell me what new homes are being delivered to the market and where is the demand at the moment? Um, so I guess the supply that's coming into, uh, the, supply that's coming into uh, the market at the moment is quite varied, um, which is exactly what we need to see. Um, in particular, there's a, there's, a, there's a fairly plentiful supply of uh, a variety of price points coming into the market for uh, the first-time buyer market. And that's always, obviously always going to be your kind of largest requirement in terms of volume. Um, but we saw f- fairly good numbers, I mean, obviously behind where uh, behind where the overall demand needs us to be, but we definitely saw some growth last year. Um, I think we haven't, the, the the official figures aren't out on it yet, but a little over 21,000 homes delivered that to That would be in Dublin last. or nationally? That would be na- nationally. nationally. And Dublin? Um, so I think you're approaching uh, Europe, uh, over 7,000 homes uh, in, the, in the sort of greater Dublin area last year. So um, I think there's still... There's still a demand, obviously, for a lot more. There's an appetite for a lot more. Um, I think what we have to balance off, though, is it's not just necessarily about the delivery of the the volume of homes that can be delivered to the market, but also people's ability to ability to purchase. Yeah. and that not necessarily being what where the individual might consider that they can't afford to purchase, but in terms of obviously the restrictions we have and the limitations we have around mortgage lending. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, we're certainly on, on on the ground and with the with the with the buyers we're experiencing that as being as much of an issue in terms of yeah. uh, in terms of people's ability to get into a home as supply is. Yeah, right now. that's an interesting one actually, given the the limitations. But the central bank's uh, macro prudential rules, those limitations, coupled with the help to buy scheme, does that mean when we're looking at the new homes market, do we, really, do we need to start separating it into two categories, kind of above 500,000 and below? Um, I guess I, th- I feel like the market already has kind of done that, done that. itself. Um, so if you are a first-time buyer and you want to be able to avail of the help to buy, you're able to use help to buy, um, then... It does somewhat concentrate most people's search in that particular category. It obviously means that there is um, there's a if you're a developer delivering property to the market as well, then you know there is uh, there's a there's a limit to what to what um, people will pay in certain neighbourhoods. So it creates, I guess, that that sort of um, a threshold around the five hundred thousand mark. So even properties that might Technically, if you if you balance them off against other properties um, and other size properties that might uh, otherwise have been priced at say five ten, five twenty, five twenty five, you'll fall often below. find they'll fall below because okay. the developer wants obviously to be able to appeal to the first time buyer market and people who are using help to buy. Yeah. So we we found we have found help to buy obviously has been um, has 
A, been pretty helpful, but it also, it's something that um, that we are seeing a lot of people using on the vast majority of first-time buyer sites that we work on. Okay, and and look, that's that's an important one, but I was, I, I probably shouldn't have been surprised, but um, just when I heard the commentary by uh, uh, Dermot O'Leary of um, Good Bodies, and he spoke that over the past 18 months, we've had an excess of uh, new home supply at the upper end of the market. Has that been your experience in, in say, the Dublin area? I think, uh, as with as with all property markets, unless you're in an incredibly busy market that's really running away with itself, you're always going to have peaks and troughs of certain things. Yeah. So I think um, I think there's there's always going to be that. You're always going to have one area of the market that is busier than than other other areas of the market. Um, our experience of the the sort of upper end of the market is there is still there is still a fair amount of movement there. Um, we still did quite a lot of transactions last year. A lot of that, from our perspective, though, is feeding into the downsizer market, which is, I guess, it's it's yeah. it's uh, it's something that's been around for a long time, but I think uh, people have sort of come up with a come up with a name for it now. So, but it is something that we're seeing a lot more of, particularly where you have people who are either at or approaching retirement age, or their kids have gone off to they've gone off to college, or they've they've moved out on their own, and they maybe have had a larger family home. And are thinking, well, a if particularly if it's an older home, the the amount of um, the amount of labour that how labour intensive an old home can be, not only in the upkeep of the house, but also mm. if you have a larger garden, the upkeep of the garden as well. So we're seeing a lot of people coming to us now, um, where they maybe have accrued quite a lot in terms of. Um, in terms of capital and the value of the home over the the family home over the years, so they can afford to maybe move into um, smaller, into something smaller, but mm-hmm. but something that's still in uh, still in the the same sort of neighbourhood area. Okay. Yeah. yeah, not so, necessarily have to move away then, perhaps from no. children and grandkids kids as well. No, so we tend to find most people that are downsizing will downsize within the neighbourhood where they've been living. Yeah, and there are many bit different reasons for that. Some of them, those are, are very basic practical reasons. Things like if you have a GP who you like and that has been a family doctor for a long time, you're not necessarily in your older years want to move away from that if there's somebody who if there's a practice that you really like and you trust so that actually is quite a big deciding factor for a number of different people on where they choose to relocate to Um, and uh, people are often the reason for downsizing is not because they want a change of area it's because they just want to simplify their own day-to-day routine and that doesn't involve having to necessarily uh, have upkeep on a house the other thing as well is we are quite a um, we're, we're, we're quite a sort of transient nation. So the chances are, if you are downsizing and you've had four or five kids that then have their own kids, then the chances are at least one of those is not living in Ireland. They're living somewhere else. And yeah. um, so it's quite a common thing as well, particularly for, we see this a lot with grandparents who are downsizing, where they say, well, I'd quite like to go into a, an apartment building a, from a security perspective, but also just the ease of being able to lock up and go away for three months oh, yeah. and, and go away wherever they need to go. And, and this is quite a new departure for Irish people because you mentioned there that, you know, we we are a people on the move, but yet our housing stock doesn't suggest that because I was going over the figures um, from the National Property Price Register for last year and I think the volume of, or the, the number of transactions um, are 58,000. 
for yeah. 2019. Now, given the stock of housing in Ireland, I think that's the equivalent to every house in Ireland being turned over or essentially changing hands every 46 years. Now, yeah. that's so far below our European counterparts. So does that mean that actually Irish people, when we get into a family home, we tend to stay there? I think it's... <sighs> Uh, in my experience, so I, I've uh, a lot of my career I spent in the UK. I spent a long time in London, as you can probably tell from the accent. And um, in London, it's very common that people will move all the time. They're yeah. continually moving. Um, and I think a lot of that happened from just being living in a rising market where people are constantly being fed how much your property value has increased by. So people think they tend to be less in my experience anyway, they tend to be less tied to the sort of family, the traditional family home and that being something that you keep for uh, yeah. for the entire time your kids are growing up. I, de- I definitely think there's there's... There's less mo- there's less movement than that than mm-hmm. the, uh, in Ireland than there would be in in say for example London or the southeast of England, um, but we are I think now seeing a lot of people who maybe for obviously during the crash a lot of people um, went through some very tough times and people who've now got back on their feet now starting to think about okay well we didn't we haven't moved for a long time but now maybe is the time to start looking at making a move might they be people who were perhaps stuck in starter homes that were only ever meant to be for a short period of time that exactly. maybe they've been there longer than they had anticipated yeah I would say so and I yeah. think there's a lot of people who found themselves in situations where they just didn't have the option to be able to move mm. um, but I think we're probably going to see that I don't think um, I mean obviously in, in peak times it was twice what it, it pe- the, the the volume of transactions happening was twice what it is yeah. now, um, but uh, but yeah, I think there's I think we'll see a lot more people now looking to kind of to start making moves. Just yeah. I'm just interested to find out from you, Ray, because you, you are director of of, of uh, Night Frank. In terms of forecasting markets with with such volatility going around, and not just political volatility but also market volatility, how accurate can can you be? Do you think in terms of forecasting? Um, I, th- I think we can. We generally tend to be fairly accurate in terms of our forecasting. It's obviously um, that's something, and particularly at a time uh, at, at the time where there's political change, then that's obviously going to be a moving a movable feast. Absolutely. So it's something yeah, that you're con- yeah. kind of continually yeah. reanalyzing and you're looking at. Mm-hmm. I guess the one thing that we do know is that uh, the population in Ireland is increasing. The population of Greater Dublin, in particular, is, incre- is increasing at quite a fast rate, and um, people the one thing one of the things that people definitely always need is somewhere to live so you know that the requirement for housing stock is going to be there um, and we just have to make sure obviously that we are delivering enough supply to that um, and that but I guess comes into lots of different sectors yeah, yeah so yeah. it's not just about concentrating on one mm. so um, obviously whilst there a lot of there's a lot of talk continually about a housing shortage, and that being related to uh, there not being enough property for people to buy. There's also a big problem at the moment in terms of supply from the private rental sector. Mm-hmm. Now, traditionally, a lot of the private rental sector in Ireland was individual private landlords. Um, those people are leaving the market in droves now. So there's a lot of people who became accidental landlords during the crash, or there are a lot of people who were landlords, but just they weren't able to get themselves out of having their rental properties. They've now ceased to be profitable. 
Um, obviously, lots of changes in terms of legislation and tax legislation in particular has meant that it's a very it's a very different prospect for you being a private landlord now, and it's a lot less attractive than it was previously. So there has been a lot of exit, and there is predicted to be continue to be a lot of people exiting that market as being individual private landlords. Right, and are there any indications? Uh, that Dublin is going like uh, London in terms of the transients of the market over there with people sort of changing jobs, moving up careers, that type of thing, coming into London 10, 5, 15 years and then moving back out to, to after they become burnt out of the place. So, burnt, out, burnt out in terms of exhaustion. Yeah, <laughs> um, I guess we're not seeing that yet. Not in seeing Dublin. that here yet. And I think. <sighs> I guess Dublin is uh, Dublin is very different from London in a number of different ways, and I think where London for many people um, has become an area, just exactly as you said, and I guess a little bit like Manhattan in many ways, where people choose to uh, they think, well, I'm going to go there and I'm going to grin and bear it for a decade or 15 years or whatever, um, and also as as it's very very common in both uh, London and in New York, where people think, well, I'll go until I'm ready to start a family, but I don't want to raise a family in that city. Dublin's very different from that perspective because actually um, it's a great it's a great place to raise kids, and uh, there's a plentiful supply also of um, uh, family homes. There's some great schools, and it is kind of widely seen as being a great area. And in fact, a lot of people move to Dublin to raise kids. So um, I. D- I hope we never get to that point where people just think of it as being a sort of short-term place to come and live and work. Um, obviously, the nature of some of the industry that we have here and, uh, and obviously how strong we are from a, uh, with a lot of the tech companies that are here, it is going to mean that there are lots of people who come in to work for a period of, of years from an employment perspective. But in a way, that's a great thing because it's increasing the cultural diversity that we have mm-hmm. as a nation and it's, uh, it's, it's, improving, it's improving the city as well. Yeah, very good. And just when we came on first, as we talked about and introduced new homes, you straight away spoke about maybe people downsizing. And that's really interesting because for the past decade, when we've been talking about new homes, it's always first time buyers, first time buyers, first time buyers. And I think that the whole concept of downsizing, which, as you rightly point out, has always been a thing. We just really never labelled it as a sector of the market. Now that's getting a lot of attention. And actually, we had uh, Professor Thomas Gray in from Trinity House speaking about the importance of all these different initiatives. And you're right, when people uh, trade down, they need to stay within their own community. And that's a positive thing for so many reasons. And it's so important. But the problem in Ireland is that we don't have the type of supply. It's not a numbers issue. It's the type of supply. So how are you reconciling that in the marketplace that you're working that, you know, if you have people who are trading down from these um, large homes that are difficult to heat and difficult to maintain with, with, um, you know, maybe large gardens that are difficult to maintain, you know, do you have something in their area to show them? Um, I guess... uh it depends on the location. So we're never going to have the, the the total amount of supply and the exact the exact product that you want to have in every single location. But I think this is something that a lot of developers um, have seen as being a future requirement over the last few years. So we are starting to see more, um, certainly things like more apartment blocks that are coming up um, in uh, in areas that have been traditionally predominantly houses. But are these apartment blocks being designed for whole of life living? Um, they are, yeah. So you're not, uh, generally what you'll find is the vast majority of, the vast majority of downsizers will not 
the requirement and what they're wanting from uh, from a home is very similar to what a first-time buyer would be looking for from exactly the same if, if they were also looking at an apartment. So there's, there's not, in terms of what you're actually delivering to the market from a design perspective, there's almost no difference. Um, and in fact, some, on, on some developments, um, we've been quite surprised at, at quite how many downsizers have come in and how successful it's been from a uh, from supplying uh, stock to that particular market sector. I think, uh, I mean, I know obviously we're, talk, we're talking about downsizers at the moment, but I think what's really important to acknowledge, though, is that downsizers are part of a chain of people that we require to be be moving to keep the market going. They're only one part of that chain, but they are an important part of that chain because everybody coming in behind them has to also they need they need them to be moving on from those uh, from those larger houses to free up requirement for the larger houses as well. Um, But obviously the 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 very real and the, the the greater volume of supply coming through really is for the first time buyer um, yeah. is is first time buyer product which we have got a good supply of that coming through uh, right now and that's set to continue over the next uh, over the next couple of years so hopefully that continues and, and that's very positive but um i suppose significantly for the week that's in it you know we're just in the in the very harsh aftermath of general election 2020 you know what new policies are you hoping to see from the new government, whatever shape that new government takes? I think we'd be less um, we'd be less specific on what policies we're looking to see, but I think that if if we can take comfort from every every political party that's been running in the election, there's been a big focus on housing, and everybody has right across the board acknowledged the need for more housing. What form that takes is obviously going to going going to vary from party to party. Um, so I think it'll be an interesting it'll be an interesting few months in terms of seeing um, what actually happens, what transpires, and what agreements are put in place for what gets delivered. Obviously, there needs to be continued assistance for first-time buyers uh, in particular. Um, there needs to be a continued focus on that. Okay. Ray, we might leave it there, but I know this is something that we will revisit, not just in the future, but I think over the coming weeks, so much is unclear. And hopefully over the coming weeks, that that will become more clear on what the impact of General Election 2020 is going to have on Ireland's housing market. So um, that was Director of New Homes at Night Frank, Ray Ray Palmer-Smith, Ray Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Stay tuned after the break. We'll be speaking to Robert Colloran, business owner of Robert Colloran Property Consultants, to take a look at the commercial market. Stay tuned. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with Carol Tallon and myself, Brian Fox. You can contact us on Twitter at iProperty Radio or email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. But as mentioned before the break, we are now in the studio with Robert Colloran, business owner of Robert Colloran Property Consultants Limited. And Robert, you're very welcome back again. I'm Thanks very much, Brian. Yeah, good, to, good, good to get through the snow together. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the impact to the uh, of the election on the PRS, co-living and hotel markets briefly. I suppose it's a bit of a knee jerk. People are are kind of very much stand off to wait wait and see. Um, you, you know, obviously, um, you know a lot of the funds are, are are being described as 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 vulture or cuckoo funds, uh, but at the same time they're providing a, a, a they're providing a rent that's there. Um, in terms of co living, um, it's business as usual. 
uh, for a lot of the co-living providers, but is this going to change? There's, there's too much uncertainty. I think what will happen is there'll be, a, um, um, I suppose, a, a sit back, wait and see what government comes in and then mm-hmm. just see what, what government policies are towards yeah. uh, existing developments. I know anything in planning at the moment would probably go through or probably proceed as normal, but... Uh, What's the position afterwards? Does it does it push on more towards housing bodies, or is it is it is it, is it standard investment model? Yeah, the only the yeah. only two potential exceptions yeah. I see to that um, are around hotel rooms and yeah. co living. Mm. So there's been a lot of commentary, um, and in fact, from a placemaking point of view, particularly mm. around the liberties in Dublin Eight, yeah. there's yeah. been so much commentary yeah. that really we don't need more hotel beds, and yet another side of the market is saying we uh, we absolutely do and I know you work across the hotel sector yeah so in terms of the what's in the pipeline for Dublin at the moment I mean do you think are are we in danger of oversupplying the market or is this actually is this actually catering to a demand that's it's, there it's I suppose it's location specific uh, in that what you can see going in and going out in terms of hotels um like the saturation points, you know, if everybody decides to build in the liberties, then, you know, it'll be oversupply. I think it's a case that look, the co- the closer to uh, Grafton Street, O'Connell Street, specifically, yeah. you know, airports, certain locations, but, you know, not everybody's going to jump around. Like if, if, if you flood the market with hotel beds, yeah. it, it might be viable. Uh, yeah. But we have, yeah. sorry to interrupt there, yeah. but we have planning for two and a half thousand yeah. or applications in, sorry, for two and a half thousand new beds in Dublin at the moment uh, hotel beds in Dublin so I mean it's two and a half thousand is that about the right figure is it too much is it too little there were reports saying that there was probably room for up to seven seven thousand but at the same time uh, that that was across Ireland uh, in in total but locations are only uh, I suppose it's location specific Um, hotels can only really be viable in cities at the moment Uh, Mm -hmm. you know the cost of construction versus the room rate a lot of hotels outside of the cities won't 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 necessarily work. Um, you know, prior to this, it would have been a case that somebody might have a hotel and a golf club or a sports complex. Mm-hmm. You know, these are trading hands where they're they're buying an existing hotel and then they're adding onto it. Uh, within Dublin, certain areas will work. Okay, Dublin eight, Dublin seven. There's probably room for a bit more. But if you can see Dublin one, for instance, uh, you have Zanzibar being built now. Uh, that was 90 beds. They extended that to 120 beds. Noah Smith on the corner of Liffey Street. Mm-hmm. He's in there. Um, Eamon Waters in on, in on Chancery Lane. You know, there are three bespoke What's hotels. What's going on Chancery Lane? Uh, I think it's a 180 bed hotel. Just, you know where the old motor tax office used to be? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there's another hotel there. I haven't there. seen the, yeah, those yeah, plans. Yeah. 180 bed? Yeah, Stay City or in the back of Mary's Lane. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stretch from kind of Cable Street across to Smithfield. Apart, apart hotels are really having a moment, aren't they? I think they are. I think there's... Uh, Is that the trend we're <coughs> going to see? Well, I think it, it depends to be quality of design. Like I was up in the Devlin Hotel recently and... Okay, it's 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 more the fire extreme. It's smaller be- bedroom sizes. Okay, bedroom sizes can range from twelve to eighteen square meters, but it's nearly like micro living. Oh yeah. Very good quality design, but what what's driving it there are the people out for a night out. Yeah. Uh, they're either eating in the restaurant downstairs, rooftop bar upstairs, the the pubs and the cafes in Ranla. So mm-hmm. they're not not necessarily hanging around the hotel. Uh, the Mason along North 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 Wall Key, fantastic fit out. 
I think they probably spent about 12 million on the fit out. It's open and trading, uh, opened in time for a Google party uh, last uh, last Christmas. Uh, but it's a fantastic building, good addition to the area. That location, there's plenty of demand for it. I think it's out the door, busy. Uh, you know, certain areas, yeah, you will see demand. There's business tourism. But I, I think the uh, situation where a hotel, you know, used to be, we give a food, a full food and beverage offering. You know, every hotel has to have a full uh, breakfast. Uh, you know, nowadays it could be a situation where I, I've stayed in hotels where you, you literally have a coffee and uh, and and you go. Yeah. yeah. You know, people don't necessarily need to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner in a hotel, or even a, a, a you know a swimming pool or, or or gym within a hotel, like the Hendrick. Uh, the Hyatt, a lot of these hotels are... The Hyatt Centric, yeah. I haven't been into that. Are they, the fit out of that, I've heard, is, is it's very... Des- it's designed along yeah. a, a boutique hotel. Yeah. <coughs> Good, clean rooms. Uh, sizes are probably 18 square metres. And then you have a kind of a, a double space lobby area. So your lobby area might have a bar, cafe, and doubles yeah. in as a waiting breakout area. So it's nearly like a uh, like a... A lounge area, but you have your Multi- city centre yeah, location. It's multifunctional, and then city centre location, and uh, people are nearly encouraged to get out and have lunch in the in the local eateries. So yeah. that would work in Dublin seven, eight, and certain locations. But if you're slightly off pitch, I don't think I don't think the facilities will be there, and that's where a hotel would need to provide them. But within walking distance, ten, if you're within ten minutes walking distance of you know, the prime sites. Okay. Is that why the Liberties are so attractive? Liberties are attractive on two things. It's because the uh, the the purchase costs are below what you'd buy in Dublin 2 and 4. Okay. So the office rents in Dublin 2 and 4 could be up to 60 euro a square foot. Let's say, for instance, uh, Alanis uh, have a site on, uh, just on the, on the South Keys there when you come across Butt Bridge. Uh, you know, that wouldn't be viable for a hotel because you'd probably get a higher office rent there. Is this on the north or south side? On the south side, south side. when you come across. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, just just before Grand Torrington and Moss mm-hmm. Street. So mm-hmm. so Tetrarch are in, a, in, in on the site behind building a large hotel, building an element of co-living and, and student accommodation. So that whole area uh, would be viable, but it depends on the price rate that they got it in. So, so it's, it's priced more so than... Well, it's it's price and location. location yeah, no, it's yeah. it's a combination of both. <clears throat> the the sites in around Dublin Eight or Thomas Street can be that bit more affordable, but at the same time, you're close enough to Guinness Distillery. Uh, you're close enough to uh, Pierce Lines. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know Dublin Distillers. You know you're you're within a certain but walking distance from Dublin. It. Dublin Eight, um, and I know people don't like using mm. the term. Certainly not. Regenification, or but there's certainly a huge regeneration going on in Dublin, and it seems to have been a decade behind. It's maybe we massive. might have expected it. it, it. Kind of part out last time. It was kind of it was it was uh, predominantly apartments. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what happened there is that the zoning was mixed use zoning, so a lot of the zoning uh, would only allow for, you know, it had to be a mix of office, retail, uh, and apartments, not just straight apartments. So and that wasn't historically a popular. No, office no. apart from uh, where the Hilton is, you know, you have Heineken uh, are, are out there. Houston side quarter was that area. Uh, other than that, it wasn't really an office location. Draw it into Digital Hub. Digital Hub was success rate. I think they're full occupancy there yeah. at the moment. Mm. But then when, when you get the likes of iconic offices tying in on the IAWS building, yeah. 
you know, it kind of, you're getting closer to that pool where, you know, the staff working for you can rent in around the area. Oh, There's yeah, two things. Yeah. The rents are a bit more affordable, but the rents are on the up. Uh, but it would be a good uh, affordable location that, that that would give you a good option other than Dublin 2, Dublin 4. Okay, and so. just because we touched on it there, in terms of development sites, obviously that's your area of expertise. Mm. You're you're known as a specialist um, in the development, for development land. A lot of the criticism we hear about the housing market and, and the viability of delivery of housing and apartments in Dublin is because of the cost of development land. Is that a reality? Yeah, well, I suppose the cost is driven by the market. So if if the market aren't prepared to pay um, X amount, um, you know, X amount per unit, then, then the units drop. But what you find recently is uh, prices that are being paid are softening. And, you know, there's two things. The cost of construction has probably gone up by 10%. Uh, that's increasing all the time. The The return uh, is kind of levelling off. Your office rents are kind of the same. So is that squeezing the margins? It's then? probably squeezing the margins. And then, you know, in terms of competition, if there's more and more being provided, it's, it's it, a lot of what's been uh, developed is based on either the rents or what a, what a housing body will, will, will pay for it. Uh, it's it's driven by the the really the rental market, not necessarily the the individual purchasers. Like most apartment blocks within Dublin, within Cork, they're not viable to build and sell on individual apartments at the moment because the cost of construction is so high compared to the return on the resale price. So what's happening there is. Uh, Investments funds like Irish Life or pension groups that are getting a bit of a, a, a they're a bit rocky at the moment with the, 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 the I suppose, the, the change in government. They're sitting back and, and, and waiting and seeing. But a lot of this is institutional investment, pension funds, buying a block of apartments with a set rent. So if you buy and build a block of apartments, you know pretty much when, when you reach practical completion, what the open market rental value will be for the apartments uh, you know what? What a one bed will rent for, what a two bed will rent for, or it's a case of if you have a housing body, what the housing body will pay you for. So you're based your your price is directly related to what rents you'll be paid afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it's either a case that it's a it's a yield multiplier. It could be four point two for five percent or four and a half percent of what the overall rent is, less your costs. Yeah. So that's that's what's driving it. But prices have come down in certain areas. Um, okay. And given I suppose the stage of the of the value chain you work at, you have insight into the market maybe a year, eighteen months before the the impact of that is felt on the market. So in terms of say the development deal the development land deals that you've been involved in over the last year can you see, are we seeing a growth in the PRS or are we going to see more towards, because student accommodation seems to, it, it's still thriving, but it seems it's to still, slow down the rate of uh, increase has slowed. I, I, I think what, 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 what you see with student accommodation is the affordability. It's, it's, mm. it's down to affordability of can you afford to keep the rents the, the, the level that they are for student accommodation. Are we approaching capacity in terms of student accommodation? In certain areas, you might be. Others, you mightn't. There's probably room for, you know, a bit more out towards UCD and um, close to Trinity. But I, I think it's a case that the planning won't allow it. 
Uh, you know, when DCC step in, they might necessarily allow student accommodation in certain locations. So and it's spe- specific to a location. Well, let's take it a step further then from student accommodation into co-living because that's been such a controversial one mm. of late. And I think politically... It, it became a really big problem for um, our housing minister and for Fianna Gael um, in general. So with we're referring to a change in, in a change in the politics of the country. But actually, it, we don't have a change at the moment. We have uncertainty. We actually don't. We're not even at the point where we have change. We're actually in that um, in that chaotic period where we don't even know what the change will be or what it will look like. So we can't even adjust to that change. The one thing we can say with absolute certainty that co-living was universally criticised by the opposition, by opposition mm. parties. Mm. I think it's a case of uh, uh, knowledge of it. You know, if there were co-living developments here already, you could you could see what they're like. You could see how well they're run. Um, it's essentially like a hotel in that you might have a, a living area similar to what we discussed for a hotel room. It could be 18, 20 square metres. You'd have a tea station within it. That's your private space. Then what you'd have is you'd have, you know, we could have shared laundry rooms, shared libraries, um, share, you know, it could be play play areas with pool tables, likes of that. It's not far off what student accommodation provides. So is it a case that we've just gotten this wrong? Um, Brian, you spoke to our to our outgoing <laughs> housing minister yes, about yeah. this yeah. and yeah. he put it down to a marketing or a perception problem? That's right, yeah. He, 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 I think he made a remark at some conference he was at mm. which, which picked up, was picked up by national yeah. media and it rolled from there in terms of bad press. Uh, a, yeah, like for me, I, I think it's it, it offers uh, an affordable rental option for mm. a transient worker or Is a young Is it affordable worker. though? At a thousand, a thousand a month or 1,300 a month, it can There's a big be difference between those two figures, though, isn't there? It, it depends on the location. Like, I, I'd, I'd look at uh, a unit uh, north of O'Connell Street. We can see you'd probably get 1,200, 1,300 rent. Mm-hmm. If it's slightly further out, uh, the, the rent mightn't be there. But it, it would have to make over 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 1,000 euro uh, a month to be viable. Yeah. and But now, to me, 1,000 euros a month is something that, mm. that um, could be considered... But at the moment, I don't think I've seen any co-living offerings that are coming in um, below 1350, nearly 1400. And that was out in Talla in Cookstown. So um, as you come closer into the city centre, we were seeing uh, 18, 16 to 1800. Yeah. You're so suddenly... But that even, that even, doesn't feel affordable. Like, no, even, and I'm a, I'm a proponent of, yeah, of even, co-living. But. It depends on the unit. I think Heinz yeah. are planning an element of co-living for for the player wills uh, oh, right. yeah. factory so you, you'll have a double you know you'll have a, a, a loft style uh, duplex offering so so it, it all depends on the design of the unit but it could range from 1300 but in all the conversation about hotels markets etc mm. and, and co-living and so forth we haven't talked about Airbnb what sort of impact is that having on the market at all at the moment uh, what's, what's happening is a lot of people are offloading on assets offloading are they yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. it depends really. the, the, the legislation that went through uh, well it, it, look, it's, it's going to you're kind of in the crosshairs now where it's, it's going to start being policed uh, people are looking at uh, going back to standard rental levels uh, some are applying for uh, commercial uh, planning permission so there's I, I, I'm familiar with one or two blocks where the assets are being sold, where people are basing it on, this is the rent that uh, the key collective are paying at the moment. Mm. This is uh, 
this is the ERV estimated rental values if they don't get commercial planning permission to to keep on that apartment block as as uh, as Airbnb. But I think what will happen is it'll only add to the to the pent up demand for hotel rooms. Yeah, you know, if you that's, t- a, that's my yeah, yeah. question really. Yeah. yeah, for a while there, you know, a lot of private individuals might have had properties in around town, good locations off Leeson Street, they might have rented them out. The rent return could have been probably 2.5, maybe even three, three times what the open market rental value would be. But you're, you're still paying a 15% management charge. You, you know, it's it's turnover every day. Yeah. Um, this is a difficult question given mm. the, the week mm. we're in and the day that we're in. But what are you expecting to see across the commercial market in Dublin, particularly over 2020? Uh, well, I suppose the, the key driver is uh, office, uh, office rents are strong. Um, you know that's driving the market. You're you're still in around sixty euro a square foot. New rentals are there. I think what will happen is uh, the level of co living would probably get a bit of a, a cut back. Uh, but I think in general the the plans were only to provide four thousand units within Dublin, and then nearly cut off after that. PRS um, will it have an impact on the market? It's too it's too early to see. But in terms of what's in planning already. Um, you look at uh, Connolly Station, you look at other large developments. The key is supply. If more rental supply comes to market, it will have an impact on overall rents. And if, if, if supply stops, it'll be a different story. We'll be back to where we were. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you so much. That was Robert Colleran of Robert Colleran Property Consultants. Thank you for being with us today. We'll take a quick break, after which we'll be talking to Gavin Gallagher, Director of PropTech TV. Stay tuned. Everything's fine on 93.9. Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with Carol Tyler and myself, Brian Fox. So as we mentioned there before the break, we're now joined by Gavin Gallagher, Director of PropTech TV. Gavin? Nice to see you back in the studio again. How nice are to be you? back, guys. Thank you. And uh, tell us about PropTech, uh, Smart PropTech in 2020. Well, where is it all going, I guess, is the question. There's a lot. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that um, sustainability is very much coming into the focus now in the whole PropTech scene. And the guys in uh, Fifth Wall, which is a big VC fund uh, based out of Los Angeles, and those guys, um, they had, they launched the biggest prop tech fund in the world at the time, about two years ago, maybe three years ago now. And they've just launched a carbon neutral fund um, under the same kind of company banner and things. So it's very interesting to see that. And it coincides with hearing an awful lot of news about sustainability. Buildings have got to tick certain boxes. Mm. It's all moving in that direction. And it's quite quickly moving in that direction. One of the things that I've noticed around um, the the innovation in the sustainability side of things, one of the things I've noticed is that a couple of years ago, these were very much on the retrofit side, whereas now I'm seeing these at um, for design and build stage. So we're, we're kind of coming more into the construction technology side of things. Yes. And I think that's that makes so much more sense. Um, well, I mean, it's a whole, there's, there's the life cycle and then there's the operating of the, like when you're building a building, you're bringing, uh, you know, the fabric together and you're building your building and that is your capital expenditure. But then there's the running costs as well as obviously, so the whole thing has to kind of tie together and fit. And you, one of the issues is when you're looking at a project nowadays, 
you're talking about maybe three years from, from, you know, concept till completion. Mm -hmm. And in those three years, there's a very strong chance that you will not find tenants at the end of the three years now because they're all moving towards the sustainable option. And I know certain government departments, there's already talk about them not being allowed to sign leases if they're below a certain energy rating. You see, now that would sound like a noble thing if it didn't mean that... um, it, they they were leaving entire buildings empty for half a decade while they were sitting around deciding about things like that. So, you know, noble objectives, but the execution certainly across government departments in Ireland has been pretty shoddy in terms of... Well, there, yeah, there can be criticism there, but I think the point is, is that, uh, you know, global... Um, Climate action, climate, uh, you know, you've got the guys outside, they like the Greta Thunbergs and things like that. That is going to eventually convert into government policy. And uh, what they've done in New York, in fact, recently, is they've, uh, the state or the, the New York City municipality, or whatever, they sent out uh, a diktat to everyone. And that is that the buildings must not produce too much uh, or they must not cost too much to heat and to cool and all this and the total cost of the retrofits of this to to comply is eight billion dollars and that eight billion dollars is like there's a huge uproar amongst the landlords who are all Mm. saying is there a lead-in period uh, I'm not too aware of the exact detail, but I've just heard eight billion, yeah. and it's it's quite a sudden, you know, application of this. And guys are saying we'll go bankrupt, and it's the it's you know that's it. I'm sorry, that's that's what it's going to cost. You know, you've had it too good for too long, and therefore this is what you now have to do. And I'm seeing that I think global warming and climate action and all this kind of stuff. It's starting to get to the point where governments are starting to take notice. I mean, have you seen Copenhagen are talking about being carbon neutral by 2025? That's only around the corner, carbon neutral. So they're really proactively at it. And I think there's going to be a catch-up period when suddenly governments are sort of saying, you know what, we have got, 2050 is too far out. You know, let's talk about carbon neutral by 2050. By 2050, we might be two or three degrees hotter in the, and, and we might be looking at serious sea level rises. So are, are, is Ireland just very much behind the curve here? Because I know with the with the NZ, the near uh, zero energy buildings, um, we, we were uh, mandating a certain standard that would kick in across commercial and residential from 2018 to 2020. But we're essentially getting to where London got to a decade ago. This so, so are our targets not big enough or are we making the mistake of trying to play catch up as opposed to kind of looking forward to where the ball is headed? I think you need to be skating to where the puck is going to be as opposed to trying to do it now. I think, I mean, if you look at Copenhagen as the example, they, they are 25 years ahead of where some cities are currently planning to be. Mm-hmm. Planning to be, okay? And so, you know... But they've spearheaded it though, haven't they? They have. And I mean, the thing is, what I, I was speaking to a chap this morning about this very topic and he was saying what's really enthusiastic about, you know, you go and say everyone has gauged the process, like government, corporates, residents, everybody is 100% behind this. You don't have, you know... Um, lobbyists kind of there saying, no, we can't possibly afford this. And, uh, you know, everyone is just gonna going along with it. And I don't know if the political will is there to kind of go out and suddenly turn around and say, right, your taxes are now going to have to go up because we're not hitting these. Well, targets. didn't we see that in the election in terms of the carbon tax? Mm, exactly. You know, it became a very decisive issue. And actually, I think as the new government is going to, uh, as the negotiations for the new government, or as was aptly named today in the in the radio, the, um, what was it? 
the Coalition of Chaos, <laughs> which, I, which I, I'm afraid that might actually be very pathetic. But as that's been negotiated, I think things like the carbon tax are going to be very important. And I think we need to be very aware that this is not going to come down to a party and party issue. This is going to come down to a rural versus urban issue mm. because an urban a uh, uh, carbon tax in Dublin is one thing a cur- and um, a carbon tax in Roscommon is a very different thing. Mm, yeah, and no. I, I'm not sure if a country the size of Ireland can't navigate that what hope do larger countries have well this is the this is the problem that you're you're looking at is is that it, it is complicated it is unpopular and if you start applying these things it's it's going to be deeply unpopular with people but i think there's going to be a point i mean if it, you can imagine in terms of okay let's leave aside residents and stuff like let's just look at corporate okay so if the government were to come along and, and tell me as a landlord, like, right, you're you're now going to be taxed 30% of your profits on for the carbon tax, for the building being inefficient. So what option do I have? I can either spend millions making the building, you know, carbon neutral, or I'm going to have to pay millions in tax mm. uh, on this. So you're, you're left with no choice. Well, I suppose the incentives are there, though. Well, the thing well, is, is... I think at some point, you know, the incentives are... There's carrot the, and stick. There's mm. carrot and stick. But I think at some point... The carrot will disappear, and it'll just be a stick. Oh, I, 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 yes, but yeah. to, to 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 get that changeover, and what you talked about the New York instance, they're playing catch up there, obviously, mm. and and I, you know, of course, the New York system would be very different to what we have here, but there should be some incentives to go. With there the has same. to be. I mean, if you look at, for example, we're talking about electric cars and the twenty thirty plan to have all electric cars. I think it, it's a great idea. I love the idea. Um, but the issue is going to be affordability of electric cars. I mean, I've looked at buying an electric car and they're quite expensive and yeah. you don't get the yeah. the little grants that you get. Mm-hmm. They are like maybe 5 or 10% of the value of the vehicle. You know, yeah, they're, they're yeah, not yeah. really making... Whereas if, if, if I was a government, <clears throat> if I was in the government and I was saying, I want to make, I want to change everything, why don't you eliminate yeah. VRT on electric cars? Well, there, there are some incentives because actually we were just toying with the idea ourselves um, and for company cars yes. there is a benefit in kind the benefit in kind um, is a it, benefit for sure yeah. exactly yes yeah. so actually th- there are some very tangible commercial benefits but, but that, think, only if you have a company mm. that's prepared to pay you. but with the general public it's going to be quite difficult but I think the major difference between here possibly and you know more about Copenhagen than I do is that we see this as an existential crisis we don't we can't quite touch we can't we've got the crisis at our own doorsteps as, as, as witnessed in the general election you know mm. with, with, with various other social problems as well so is that not a factor in terms of, of what we're talking about? I mean, the thing is, is lo- politics is always local, as they say. So mm. obviously, homelessness and prices of houses and all that, that is a... But I think there's a global issue forming here and, mm. and enough people are just not paying any attention to it, you know. OK, so I have to ask, did you see the clip of Danny Healy Ray? No, I didn't. I have heard something about it, all right, yeah. Because he's, he spoke out that essentially he felt that... Um, he felt that how the voting went was a display that um, people are less concerned about the planet and they care more about the issues. Now, he, he came out and apologised afterwards, but um, I, I thought, I felt it was very telling. Um, mm, yeah. So I, I wonder, you know, we we can work towards policies, but there needs to be a very real individual understanding of the impact of our behaviours. And I, I think that one of the things that was said last year at a conference was that um, in Ireland, we're very much a nation of individuals. We're not good at 
thinking as a collective Mm. and seeing ourselves as part of the collective. We are a nation of individuals and that's why we have issues in terms of planning and in terms of nimbyism and in terms of wanting our one-off homes. And look, I've found frequently I I fit well into that criticism. Um, But but I believe that it is something that... It can't be uniquely Irish. These are not uniquely Irish issues. No, yeah, no, you're right about that. I mean, and if you go to somewhere like the US, it's it's state by state. There, you know, there's different opinions and different views of even global warming and things like that. And look, look who's run, run, running the government there. I mean, the biggest, you know, climate, climate denier. denier. Well, that's for his, his own suit, suit. Yep, sorry, I won't go. Yeah. But there yeah. are but there are guys yeah. out there that believe, you know, well, oh, the true the, the tree huggers and all this. And the, and the reality, if if you look at the biggest uh, sustainability kind of buffs out there at the moment, Tim Cook, uh, Mike Bloomberg, you know, all of these billionaires that are actually running huge corporations, they they get it. Like they're the ones spending tens of millions and billions on on buildings now. I was in London, I was at the new um, headquarters for, for Bloomberg and it's the it's the most sustainable building ever built. Uh, now, but it cost a billion pounds to build it. Where know? is this? It's... Um, it's near the city. It's on the edge of the uh, of the kind of financial district, and it's um, it's it's actually I can't remember the name of the, of the but there's actually a subway station or the tube station directly below, and the, the building itself, and it's absolutely the US Embassy is the same, I think, isn't it? I think yeah, well. they have one as well. Yeah, yeah. that's that's a bit further away. Further away, it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, this yeah. is it's a stunning building. Norman Foster built it, and you know, it's, you know, as you'd expect. Yeah. But if you can afford it, spend it. But the reality is, is is that um, that's the kind of thing we need to be going towards. You know, we well, to I be... know our our um, Eastern and Midlands uh, Regional Assembly. Um, at the moment, there there's an initiative underway that all planning applications will soon need to include um, a carbon, essentially a carbon footprint of the development. Mm-hmm. Now, we've actually spoken to to the team there that are tasked with designing this and at the moment it's in very early stages but the reality is when a planning application is made along with the environmental impact statement um, shortly in Ireland developers will need to put forward what the carbon uh, what the, what the carbon impact and, and what the what the overall impact of their um development is going to be but what's interesting is that it has to be over the life the life cycle of, of the, the scheme yeah. now property developers have never been involved in this before so this is an entirely new one and it will be so interesting to see how it is worked out but essentially you have um architects and design engineers and life cycle assessment engineers now trying to work out life life cycles for a whole development you That's know it. that these are homes changing hands these are appliances yeah. that are replaced with different types of appliances you know it's such a huge undertaking that we can't even imagine what the measurement will look like for that to have any degree of accuracy so that it's relevant i mean the thing is is i, I think obviously if you know i have a couple of kids in at school age that are all 100% behind this so education is definitely working the young people i think it's educating you know older generations to actually accept that this is something um, that kind of thing is very complicated and you're, you know, a lot of house builders out there would not be particularly sort of complicated thinkers. You know, they they see it as build a couple of houses, sell it and that's it. Once you're getting into these, you know, you're having to hire all these experts to come in and, and do these life cycles. I think it's going to be, if anything, it'll just slow down the process a little bit. I, I cannot mean, believe you just said that, Gavin Gallagher. <laughs> 
I've seen, I mean, I've seen. You don't think that home builders are complicated thinkers? That's the kind of thing, you know, you hear sometimes when people make a sweeping generalisation about farmers. And I actually think that anybody who is self-employed running businesses, I, I think that they are so far beyond complicated thinkers. I think they're absolutely, uh, it's the entrepreneurial spirit. It's the breadth of knowledge that you need to have, the understanding of so many different factors. So I would I would I would well, I would be on the polar opposite side and say that I actually think they're probably among the most holistic thinkers that well, we have. Okay, let me just refine it in for I have I, I work with some people that are house builders and uh, and some of them would be quite anti this whole sustainability thing. They would be quite dinosaurs in their thinking and along that line. And so that's my you know, that's obviously See, my view. I, I would a, call I would call that a vested interest. I wouldn't say they're not uh they're not complicated thinkers. I would say that they're perhaps being led commercially. Perhaps. I well, mean, it's legislation then, isn't it, that really has to take place to... to, to that's the whole carrot and stick. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Do you need them both? Yeah. 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 The problem is, what you want is, is for people, is for the general public to actually know that this is an issue and that these, these are the decisions that have to it's be taken. On the, I think, well, it is it's now for sure. On. You can yeah. see now, by, I'm not, I don't want to get into politics now, but yeah. we, we see by the number of Green TDs return mm. well, so. so let's get a little bit specific about some of the emerging technologies that we're seeing. So um, I know that this is an area you have an interest in and that you take an interest in some of the prop tech startups globally. What what kind of innovations are you seeing well, coming I mean, in to apply to s- smart buildings and to smart cities? One of the things that I'm seeing a lot of is uh, digital twins, and uh, and it's it, it, this whole idea of uh, having your building represented in, mm. in digital form so that you can do testing and all of this kind of stuff in advance. So, you know, we're having these kind of discussions about the life cycle. You can actually run all of that if you have a digital twin. Yeah. And uh, now, what is a digital twin? A lot of people, you know, still question that kind of a thing but if if, for example we're looking at uh, renovating one of the floors in in our building at the moment and you can put in different sources of light you can put in different you know all of these things have an impact on the energy usage and the uh, the insulation all that if you build a digital twin you you can put in all of the fabrics you can put in all of the energy sources and you can actually tell in advance what your building is going to do so you can make decisions based on data that's actually yeah you know and and that kind of thing is something we've had that, we've had uh, Ralph Montague in from ArcDocs. Yes, I know Explain the concept yeah. of, of digital twins and the importance. And actually, we've had a few engineers in speaking about um, dynamic simulations. Yes. And yeah. so that's exactly what you're talking about, actually running what all of these different systems will do and what the likely outcomes will be. Uh, and I've also seen then uh, space usage is, is a really yeah. interesting um, area and it's, you know, IoT sensors and all this. One of the companies I've come, I've been working with is a company called Space T. And, and those guys have, uh, they put sensors even under the chairs and things like that so they can know if a, if a chair is in use. But I was speaking to one of the tenants in, uh, in, in East Point uh, who, who who renovated the building and they did an entire building management system that's connected to everything. Yeah. So their lights, every single light in the building is LED, but not just that, it's sensor operated and it also is collecting data. And so you can tell if the, the what the CO2 levels are, you can tell whether the temperature is, you can tell the light. 
if the room is used. So for one example they were explaining is that uh, there's a bank of toilets and uh, and one of the cubicles never gets used from one end of the week to the next. There's just there's enough cubicles that it doesn't ever get used. Yet they're sending a cleaner in there three times a day to clean it. Yeah. And so these are small little micro changes that you can make that just make But very important in terms of reducing costs. Are we at the stage where this type of technology is being used to monitor and collect data or are we starting to get to the point where uh, we are applying machine learning so that we can actually action these so that you don't have a cleaner going into that end cubicle? Well, I don't think a machine learning is there yet. I think, I mean, that's ultimately where we'll get to where the machine would be you know, telling people not don't go and clean. I think it yeah. needs to be, you know, the data can be harvested, but then somebody has to interpret the data. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the issues that you're going to have. But I was looking at, I mean, another aspect, we have, an, we have another tenant in the park and there they were looking to add about 50 desks. Uh, they wanted to hire all these extra people. And they were asking, you know, can we find the space to do this? And I asked some, some sort of probing questions and I was saying, like, how many desks do you have at the moment? And they have about 200 desks, we'll say, 200 people working there. And, uh, and they want to add 50 to it, okay? Um, but then I was saying, what about people working from home? You know, how often is the building in use? And they were saying that uh, about 50% of their staff work from home at any time that they choose. They have this kind of flexible arrangement. But they don't you share the desks. So when 50% of their staff go home for the day, the desk sits there and yet they're looking to hire another 50 desks. And I was saying, you've got 100 desks sitting empty. And yeah. So this is where... You've got to the think. Smart use. Yeah, there's this use of the oh, smart absolutely. technology um, is is one thing, but it's actually having the policies to apply to it as well. Yeah, it's the understanding. Okay, um, we'll leave it there for now. Definitely, it's an interesting one. We'll come back to again. Gavin Gallagher, Director of PropTech TV, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to thank all of our guests who have joined us today on the show. That's it from us on Property Matters, the show where property matters. Get in touch with the show by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio or on Twitter at iPropertyRadio. Also, I want to thank Peter Rice on sound and show producer Katie Tallon. We're back at the same time next week from Brian Fox and myself, Carl Tallon, and all the team here. Have a great week. 